Great, thank you. And uh, congratulations to Desmond. Uh, I love the um, Duncan Desmonds. I felt like that should be a TV show or something. And um, that sounded fantastic. So um, really, really con massive congratulations um, to you guys. Um, I've known Stuart now for a number of years, and Esther, actually, and Sarah and others. And, and I've always just felt like a real sort of synergy in values and heart and... Uh, Whenever I come to Bristol, I try and hook up with Stuart if I can and uh, have much admiration and respect for Stuart and uh, for everything that he, he's done in this area. So I feel like you're a very fortunate church. And uh, um, so a number, well, it's about a year ago now, I was sitting in my office and I was looking at all my Christian books and, uh, which argue about theology, which argue about different things. And, and all those things are important. It's good to have important theology. And I was sitting there and I was going, do you know what? I don't think there's a book in my study that is written by a Christian that I would give to a non-Christian. And I was like, oh, that's quite a thing, isn't it? And uh, I had like evangelistic books, you know, like Crossing the Switchblade and some of those sort of things. But, but I wanted something that was maybe talked about spirituality and faith and well-being, but did it in a way that was really gentle, but also did it in a way that if they didn't take that part out of it, it was still going to really benefit them and uh, do them good. And if they applied the tools within the book, that they could actually see change in their lives. And uh, so I've done something I never did before. I wrote a book, but not for Christians. I wrote a book um, for people within our communities, your friends that may be struggling. And actually, it's for all of us because I feel like we all struggle at times. Is that right? And the other thing I did with this book is I decided to um, write it in a completely different style to all my other books. So when I went through a bit of a breakdown uh, many years ago, uh, people kept on giving me books to read, you know, and, uh, and normally they're big, thick, quite clinical books like that, and, and my head just wasn't in the game. I, I could barely read a paragraph, not alone a book. And uh, so what I decided with this one is just to write it in really short stories and poems and little quotes and tools that you can use um, to help you in your emotional and mental health. And uh, so please, if you're interested in getting this for yourself, that's great. But if, you're, if you could get it for someone that's struggling, um, it is like the perfect gift and there's deals on there. And we even had a card machine because we're very COVID friendly these days. And, uh, but get one. I'm happy to sign it for you. I'm happy to sign it for someone who you know who's struggling. Um, we launched this in my local Costa Coffee and uh, it was packed with people from the coffee shop. And now every time I go in, every single one of the Costa Coffee servers has got a copy of this book. And uh, so it's amazing. I have the most amazing conversations and I feel at last I've got something I can give to the people in Costa Coffee and uh, not feel embarrassed that they're not going to understand the lingo or the language and all that sort of stuff. So please check that out. Um, that would be amazing. And then secondly, um, we've just got these beautiful kintsugi pendants made. I know some of you have seen these before. Um, they're bespoke handmade that talks about finding beauty and brokenness. And again, um, really unique, but you can check those out as well. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, writing a book called Brighter Days, um, because if you write a book called Brighter Days, you have to admit there's also been dark days, I think. And, uh, and I don't know how, many, how you feel when you, when you watch the news. I mean, how many people watch the news on television? Put your hand up. 
Wow, that's quite a lot. How many people scroll through the news on their phones instead? And, uh, or a bit of both. But just, just out of interest, when you watch the news, when you scroll through the news, just someone call out, what, what are the sort of feelings it produces in you? What does it make you feel? Sorry? Depressed. Depressed. Yep. Overwhelmed. In- scared? Yeah. Heartbroken. It's quite anxiety-inducing at times. Um, and, and I've been really grappling with this, you know, because life is tough. You know, I was meant to be here uh, tomorrow to speak in a school. So I do a lot of, I'm speaking to teachers, so I do a lot of staff training on well-being. And I was meant to be in a school in Bristol tomorrow afternoon. They rang me up in a week saying, I'm, I'm really sorry, but we're going to have to cancel because of the gang activity in the area and the, the, the murders in the area. Um, we're going to have to send the students and the staff home at three o'clock. And so we can't do tr- staff training anymore. And, uh, and it feels at times, it can feel, I think someone said it, completely overwhelming. Uh, wars across Europe, you know, Israel and Hamas. And, you know, um, there is nothing that can get uh, evangelical Christians heckles up like talking about Israel, I've discovered. And I've just mentioned it. Um, but the reality is, whatever your politics is, the loss of life is crazy. It's colossal. And it, and, it, and it shouldn't be happening. Um, you know, climate change, um, mental health crisis. My friend who's a police officer says, you are never more than 100 yards away from a domestic violence case in this country. Anywhere. Rural communities, just slightly more because the houses are slightly more spread out. Anywhere. It's the pandemic no one wants to talk about, no one wants to call out. And, uh, and then you look at the systemic injustice. And then you look at our own lives. And sometimes, I don't know if my life is a little bit like your life, but sometimes life can feel a little bit like a roller coaster. Can anyone put their hand up if they relate to that? It can feel like... And the thing about a roller coaster, right, is when you go down, you feel like you're out of control, don't you? You feel like... And when I go through those dips in my life, I start thinking, how long is this going to last for until I start to go up again? And, uh, or I start fearing the next dip um, because, you know, I don't want to get my hopes up because I don't want to be disappointed. Is, is that just me? Or am I making any sense? And, uh, and so you live in this really difficult place. And, uh, you know, and families are complex, you know. Uh, relationships are complex. My dad's going through a cancer journey at the moment. Really, really difficult. Um, I have four children, uh, three of which are teenagers, I know. Uh, The other day, I really upset my 18-year-old. I don't know what I was thinking. We were at the dinner table, and uh, we were having dinner, and she got really, really upset with me. I was very thoughtless, um, because apparently I was breathing too loudly. And uh, I apologised. But then I asked her to empty the dishwasher. She pointed out she had done it two years ago, and uh, I shouldn't be putting so much pressure on her. But, um, but, you know, a joke, but families are complex. And yet, despite all the tough stuff, every single day, there are acts of love and kindness that don't receive any airtime. There are stands for justice. There are incredible, outrageous acts of forgiveness. And so I guess that I've been grappling with, how do we respond? How do we respond to the community around us? How do we respond 
to the brokenness in our own lives when we see it there? And uh, how do we respond? And I started to look again at the person of Jesus and notice what motivated Jesus in the way that he responded. Because Jesus always seemed to love without any agenda. And I realized that if I love someone and expect something back, I'm not really loving them, I'm just doing business. (laughs) And what does it mean to love someone without an agenda? And I started to read verses like this. This is Matthew 9, verse 36 to 38. He said, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like a sheep having no shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I find that really interesting because, you see, a sheep uh, without a shepherd, they're aimless. They're just wandering around. In fact, they're probably in danger because the shepherd was the one that used to protect them. And he said, the people, they're like a sheep without a shepherd. They're wandering around. They're not aware of the dangers around them. But what did that lead him to be? It led him to be full of compassion. And compassion is the word I really want to bring to you today because I don't think compassion is an airy, fairy, fluffy word. Compassion is a verb. Compassion means suffering with, but also being compelled to action. And I guess what I've been trying to work out is how do I engage with the world around me? How do I engage with my own pain without being completely and utterly overwhelmed? and completely paralyzed because sometimes it just feels too hard. Does that make sense? How do we do that? And I think the answer is in Jesus. The answer is is understanding what compassion truly is. Mark 1 verse 41, uh, the man with leprosy, he approaches Jesus. Now, if you had leprosy in that culture, I'm sure you're aware, you used to have to shout out unclean and uh, stigma, loneliness, isolation. This guy hasn't had a human touch before. And yet Jesus reaches out and touches this guy, and he's healed. Imagine the reaction. Imagine the shame that this guy felt, that he was completely and utterly worthless, broken off from his community. Uh, Matthew um, 20, the blind man, it says exactly the same thing. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight, and they followed him. So compassion is an awareness of suffering combined with a desire to help alleviate that suffering. And I sort of see there's like four key areas to compassion, really. One is the awareness of the suffering of another. Two is connecting to the other person in a way that makes us feel that the suffering is worthy of our attention. Sharing the feeling of suffering of another, feeling empathetic, taking action to relieve or lessen the suffering, as well as taking action to remove the causes of suffering where possible. And this is really key. We do this to others and we do it to ourselves. Compassion is awareness, connection, empathy, and action. And so I'm asking myself, what am I not aware of? What's my blind spots? Where's my limitations? Where's my biases? You know, the way that we see the world particularly through our news channels and through our social media channels, is filtered via other people's opinions. You know that, right? And uh, someone described social media to me in terms of the algorithms, you know, is social media sometimes can feel like playing chess with someone who already knows your next move before you do. (laughs) It's quite a clever uh, little quote, isn't it? Um, 
And because the, these guys, they pick up on stuff, don't they? I, I recently, um, I've been on social media, and my wife gets all these like comedy videos that she loves like giggling to and and showing me. And the other day, I had a, a, a just a random conversation about a garden office. It'd be interesting to get a garden off. My social media is full of adverts for garden offices. It's the most boring social media that you will ever look at. Every day, I'm like, oh, there's another garden office, great. And uh, but the reality is is the message that we're getting told is often filtered. And we really need to be aware of that. And then I think the other thing that happens, if I'm honest, is then we live in a bit of an echo chamber. Because what we do is we only ever hear from people that agree with the way that we see life. And, uh, and we only ever watch things like Netflix. You know, if you like this, you can have this. You know, have something very similar. So we live in this echo chamber. Are we aware of actually what's going on? Have we lost what it means to disagree well? So I used to play uh, football. Um, I was a semi-professional football player many, many, many years ago. And it was really interesting because, you know, you'll be there on a Saturday, and then afterwards we used to go, um, go into the bar and we'd have a drink. And when we used to go into the bar and have a drink, um, we used to discuss everything. Politics, sexuality, um, what's going on around the world, all sorts of things. And we used to disagree on everything. It was really interesting. We used to have like the massive debates and all that sort of stuff. The next week, when we were on that football pitch, we were on the same team and we had each other's back. It, I feel like we've lost the ability to disagree well. And if we just need a bit of a wake-up call and going, what are we not aware of? You see, the thing is this, is I need to be aware of my conscious bias and my unconscious bias. I need to stop looking at situations and jumping into judgment straight away. And Jesus did this all the time. He made people see, uh, feel seen, valued, and heard. And as well as looking at their physical condition, he looked at what was going on in their lives. And if you think about it, what was going on in their lives for most of these people was they were full of shame. They thought they were worthless and I feel like today that actually shame is the key driver to why anxiety happens, to why depressions happen, perfection happens. And shame and guilt are really different. Shame is toxic. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is I feel like I am wrong. You know, Brené Brown, the famous research professor, says shame loves silence, secrecy, and judgment. It has two gremlins. Who can relate to this? Who do you think you are and you're not enough? We live with that imposter syndrome, and it is the key to why there's so much challenges in our world and in our lives. It's interesting, um, in Kintsugi Hope, uh, week four is on shame. And uh, when uh, the pandemic happened, all our groups moved online. Um, Kintsugi Hope grew by 450% during the pandemic. <laughs> and over 10,000 people have been through the groups. A third of them aren't Christians. And uh, there was this one particular group that was for mums who had lost their kids to foster care. And so if you've lost your kids to foster care, basically you've had a judge say, you're not fit to be a mum. So it's heartbreaking. And there's probably very good reasons for it, but it, for your self-esteem, it's, it's crushing. And uh, so this one, this group of mums, what they did on week one is they all had their cameras sort of facing the ceiling. Um, one particular mum, you could tell she was there. There was a silhouette there, but the lights were down low. Week four, we talked about shame. The way that you combat shame is you own your story. 
You find safe places where you can be real and honest and authentic. And, you, you get, and if you get responded with empathy and compassion, then you feel like you can start to move forward. And, uh, and so we talked about that. Week five, uh, they came online, and for the first time, the woman's light was on, and you could see her face. I'm like, that's what Jesus does. He took away people's shame. He said, I see you. And you know, everyone deserves to be seen, valued, and heard. Haggai, in the Old Testament, I love this, you know, Ishmael's mother, driven into the desert by mistreatment, and God sees her and speaks to her in the desert, and she responds with Eli Ruel, which means God who saw me. And you know, guys, you, um, I've been to, I've lost count how many churches I've spoken in over the last um, 30 years. And you know what? I go into church and people go, I don't always feel seen. I don't always feel seen because sometimes the people that do well in church are not people like me. I'm an introvert. So if I was sitting there today, I found church quite challenging sometimes. And uh, it's the extroverts, it's the charismatics um, that do well. It's the people that may have confidence to speak out with the time. And sometimes people are sitting there going, I feel unseen, I don't want to feel unseen. And it's not saying it's their fault, it's not the church's fault, but actually it's that feeling sometimes where you feel like you're on the outside looking in. The woman with the blood disorder, incredible shame, 12 years of feeling unclean, rejected by society. And she reaches out to Jesus in a mass of crowds. And in the mass of crowds, Jesus responds to the one who feels broken. And there's a great quote here um, that says, Before the crowd, Jesus, he, draws attention to the whole person, not just someone who's been ill for a long time and was desperate in pain, but a person of great faith, someone who, through whom others can see God if they bothered to stop and look. Because what Jesus was saying was, don't be defined by your condition. You have so much to offer. There is no them and us. There is just us. Zacchaeus, why was he in the tree? The Sunday school answer was, because he's small. Well, actually, the reality is, that may have been part of it, but he wasn't gonna, he's a tax collector. He's hated by everyone. He's not going to stand next to the people he's hated by. Um, he's full of shame. He has to go up the tree. It's the only option he has, really, when you think about it. Yet Jesus stops for the one and says, I'm coming to your house for tea. And I just feel like everyone has a backstory. And we need to understand what it means to be fully human, that we all have stuff we struggle with. I want to read you a bit of a poem, which I find quite moving. And uh, there's some pictures coming up here as well. It's called Just Like Me. Just like me. This person has a body and a mind just like me. Just like me. This person has feelings, thoughts, and emotions just like me. Just like me. This person has, during his or her experience, experienced physical, emotional pain and suffering, just like me. This person has been sad, just like me. This person has been disappointed in life, just like me. This person has been angry, just like me. This person has been hurt by others, just like me. 
This person has felt unworthy or inadequate at times, just like me. This person worries just like me. This person is frightened sometimes, just like me. This person is learning about life just like me. This person wants to be caring and kind to others just like me. This person wants to be content with the life that they have been given just like me. This person wishes to be happy just like me. This person wishes to be strong and healthy just like me. And this person wants to be loved just like me. More alike than unalike. And so we have to move to a place where we are aware of people's pain, aware of our biases, but that creates a connection. It creates a connection just the way that Jesus connected with people. So when Jesus said to Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for tea, like a rabbi would never go to someone's house for tea in that context. Because by saying in that culture, I'm coming to your house for tea, what he's basically saying is, I want a relationship with you. I want a friendship with you. It was a really intimate thing to do. He wanted that connection. When he healed the woman with the blood disorder, he called her daughter. Daughter, you are special. Being conscious of that connection amongst other people is so, so important. And then that leads to empathy. And now empathy is a really tough word, actually, to understand. And uh, it means uh, being aware of the experiences of another. And you see, it's about having empathy for others, but also empathy for your own brokenness as well. And it's interesting that um, I don't think there's such a thing as compassion fatigue. I think it's made up. Because if you understand what compassion is, then you receive compassion from others, you show compassion to yourself, and then you also um, give compassion. It's self-fueling. That's what it should be. But the challenge with empathy is what happens is, if you're not careful, you can take on everyone's pain. And the challenge is our compassionate instincts don't go well with our flight, fright, or freeze responses that we often have. Um, there was a guy, um, let me step through this. There's a guy called um, Dan Siegel, who is a psychologist, and he talks about the window of tolerance. So he would say that actually this is our sort of fight or flight at the top, hyperarousal, we're hypervigilant, we're panic, we're anxiety, fear, and when a situation happens, boom, that's where we hit. Or actually, we go to the bottom and we numb and we deny how we're actually feeling. And he's like, can we live somewhere in the middle? And then he was like, the only way that we're going to live in the middle is to really understand what compassion is. Because compassion and empathy work on different, type, different parts of our brain. So empathy works on the part of our brain, which is your reward, uh, sorry, your pain center and the pain receptors in the brain. Whilst compassion works on the, the responses that arises in the brain, which is on your reward center. So it's complete, they work on very different places. So it's really interesting, over 30 years of, uh, 35 years of working uh, within this context, people sometimes ask me, you know, Patrick, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned in that 30 years of working in communities, speaking in churches, speaking in schools and political arenas and TV, all the jazz, that craziness that makes up my life? And, uh, and I say this, 
the biggest lesson I wish I could pass on to people is I've come to realize that I am not the rescuer. I can't fix people. Only Jesus is the rescuer. I can't do it. And I also have come to realize I can't be a sponge for other people's pain. Um, I will walk with them. I will walk alongside them. I will be among them. Hopefully, I'll be aware of their pain. I will connect with them. I'll have empathy. But I've got to turn that empathy into compassion. And that compassion is action. It's doing something about it. Because you see, what happens is, is we all have those inner scripts about stuff we believe about ourselves, don't we? When I was um, 10 years old, uh, I was involved in a really serious car accident. We were, um, my, some of my relatives, they live in Exeter, and so they came down once a year, my, my dad's brother and uh, his kids, my cousins. And, and then, so um, all the other brothers, they live uh, locally. So we'd all go out, you know, as a big family thing once a year. And so I remember we went to South End Bowling, Tempin Bowling. And on the way back, I was in the car with my sister, uh, my nan, and my mum and dad. And there were two other cars behind. And we were going down this road. And then suddenly, um, a car from nowhere pulled out right in front of us. And um, what would have actually... My dad was incredible because what he managed to do is he managed to brake and do some crazy manoeuvre to get round the car. It would have been better if we'd hit the car in the back, actually, um, because we, we moved round the car, and then we hit the car coming the other way. Um, so it was a 100-mile-an-hour impact. And I remember, um, as soon as it happened, I sort of came round. Um, I saw my dad was bleeding in the front seat. My mum was, I don't know, like in agony. Um, I, my sister was crying. I, I can't remember what my nan was doing. And then I just fainted. I was just out of it. And then I came out again, and there was a nurse there, and there were ambulances there. And, and, uh, and I, was, I was the only one that wasn't, didn't appear um, really badly injured. And so I was running around to the different ambulances where my parents and my sister were and uh, ended up in an ambulance with my sister and taken to hospital. And then when I got to hospital, everyone else was in, put in hospital for operations. My dad was in one hospital, my mum and my sister were in a different hospital. And I went home with my nan that night. And I remember thinking to myself, one is, am I ever going to see my family again? But two... And no one told me this, but I basically said to myself, be strong, hold it together. Whatever you do, you've got to be strong and hold it together. And then I realized recently that actually I've taken that inner script into most aspects of my life. Because I've run, in the last 30 years, two charities that I started from scratch and if you've done anything in the charitable world, you know like you're constantly skint. <laughs> you're constantly having to try and raise money. You're constantly trying to say to the staff, don't worry, we won't go out of business, it's going to be okay. You're constantly dealing with, well, in my job, going to funerals of knife crime victims or holding kids in your eye that could die of a preventable disease. And you just say to yourself, be strong, hold it together, because you've got to hold it together for everyone else. And then the empathy you feel, because you don't want to go rock hard, is you start to feel like, I just don't know how to do this anymore. 
And then, of course, when you run any business or any charity, you get the HR issues. And, uh, and then staff go in, oh, actually, I want to leave now. And you're like, I've just spent two years trying to raise your salary. And, and now you want to go. And it just starts thinking, piling on. And you feel like this over sense of responsibility, feeling anxious. And I've come to the conclusion that it is good to be aware. It's good to be connected to other people's pain. Um, it's amazing to have empathy but we've got to move to compassion. And that compassion is for others. That involves action. What can we actually do to help? And number two is also compassion for yourself. So you have to learn to self-soothe. And you have to remember that you know, struggle is a part of life. And uh, I always think with Jacob's wrestling with God throughout the night, it doesn't feel like a very fair match, to be honest. You know, Jacob and then God. You know, God could have overpowered him, I think. I think God could have won that battle. And yet, they struggled all night. And it was like, actually, Jacob, I'm not going to condemn you for your doubt. I'm not going to put you down for your doubt. We're going to wrestle. And, you know, Jacob leaves that, doesn't he, with the scars of the struggle. Israel is known as the one that wrestles with God. The Psalms give us language for our struggle. Uh, Psalm 103, verse 8, says, uh, says this. It says, um, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abiding in love. Um, there's another brilliant quote here that I think is really helpful that talks about how we share our stories. The more we share our stories, the more we receive with compassion. The, the more our brains are shaped to anticipate love instead of rejection. When we allow others to bear witness to our own weakness, we learn to relate to ourselves with kindness and hope. When someone listens and validates us as we tell our story, they ignite a new way of considering our story as valuable, worth hearing, worth telling, worth living. We've just got to do it. The last thing then on my, just as I come into land, is the last thing is if compassion is about um, awareness, it's about connection, it's about empathy, then it's about action. What's the most famous tagline in the world? Anyone got any idea? Nike, just do it. Um, what's the most important word in that slogan, just do it? Sorry, you can, it's a panto, you can answer, it's fine. Do? It's interesting, right? So um, I've done a little bit of research on this. And the people that did all the science behind it, because the amount of research that goes into these taglines is off the chart, by the way. And... Uh, um, and of course, you know, Just Do It was really sort of aimed at athletes and people that were running. And, uh, and so the people were like, you know what, if do it is the main word, it feels a little bit aggressive, doesn't it? You know, if you've got a runner there, do it. All right, hang on. You know, um, when you're facing that, you know, brain tumor, just do it. Get over it. And actually, they put the word just in because they wanted to go, you know what? just do it it was a different tone and what by putting the word just in they're going with all your fear with all your anxiety with all that <laughs> what's going through your stomach as you're going to take off down that 100 meter slap, uh, race just do it just do it and suddenly it feels very different we need wisdom we need discernment um, we need sometimes to tap into the deepest part of us and sometimes the only action we can do is offer our presence and sometimes that's okay. You know, ask anyone in palliative care that sometimes people just need people to be there. 
You know, the motivational speaker. I'm doing loads of speaking outside of the Christian world at the moment, which is fascinating. But you hear these motivational speakers who like, you know, there are no limits. You can achieve anything you want to. It's actually not true. It's a recipe for disaster. Because some of us have kids. We can't go off and do anything we want to do. Um, God designed us to be limited. We have 24 hours in a day. He asks us to rest. He asks us to be available to our families. And uh, so the key is, is what is God calling us to do? And, uh, and I think that is part of my massive challenge. Uh, just to finish, really, um, a couple of, well, it was about six months ago now, I was sitting in uh, with some very well-known Christian leaders planning a very big festival in the UK. Um, I won't mention its name, but it happens in the springtime. And, um, and we were talking about who's going to talk at each seminar, you know. And there was this one seminar, and there were literally about six or seven speakers all wanting to speak at this seminar. And I was like... Um, that's amazing, you know, there's obviously a lot of people that want to speak on this. And I just felt God say, you know, it's a real shame there's not more people like me from a faith perspective that would be willing to go and speak outside the Christian bubble. Um, why do all the best Christian communicators stay within the Christian bubble, which is actually quite small? You know, I, I put it like this, you know, here's the church culture. In church culture, we have our own music. Um, we have our own TV shows, our own TV programs, we have our own radio programs, and it's all great because the church is an important culture. But what would it look like to go to other places, maybe into education, like I was meant to do yesterday? What would it look like to go into business, um, to work with well-being programs? And, you know, workless, um, mental health is the biggest reason of worklessness in this country. It costs the economy £119 billion every single year. 60% um, of people who struggle with their mental health in work will never go to their employer and say, I'm struggling. Um, they'll just slowly and slowly get worse and worse and worse until they're signed off work. If you're signed off work for more than 18 months, the likelihood is you're not going to go back. Um, I was in uh, House of Commons this week, a couple of days ago, talking to the Department of, uh, Department of Work and Pensions about this and about the possibility of putting Kintsugi groups in job centres to help this situation. Um, what about universities and the media and, and the NHS and, and, uh, and more business and the police service and, and all these uh, farming communities? And then people are like, Patrick, how on earth do you expect to be able to speak into all these different arenas? Are you completely and utterly mad? It's impossible. And I was like, well, the reality is, actually, there are Christians in every single one of these places. And, and sometimes those Christians in those places maybe need to go, you know what, we love what we do on a Sunday, we love what we do in the community, but you know, where you work is, is the best mission field that you could have. Connecting with people, reimagining what life can be like when we start to put kingdom ethics and values first. And so I started a business um, about six months ago to go alongside Kintsugi Hope. I haven't left Kintsugi Hope. To go alongside Kintsugi Hope, which allows me now to go to different places and speak. So I was in Lincoln County Council the other day. Um, I did two hours with 70 members of their exec team. A woman comes up to me at the end, and I was talking about grief, and said, I've just lost my husband. Um, I've just been left with two young children, and I just haven't known how to process it. Thank you so much for giving me a safe space. Um, 
uh, other places, other stories, so many. And I just want to do, see what God's doing and join in. Because I am determined that despite all the rubbish, despite all the pain, despite all the anxiety-inducing stuff we all talked at the, at the start, I actually believe people are good. People are kind. I believe the Spirit of God actually is in everyone, isn't it? You know, it says that in Genesis, everyone is made in the image of God. And sometimes it's like calling that, everyone has that divine spark. And so if we can connect to someone's heart as well as their mind, then we can see a difference. I want to play you a song um, to finish with. It's a U2 song because Stu said, if you're going to come and preach, uh, Ebby, you have to have a U2 song. Um, it's like part of, the, part of the deal. So I'm sorry about that. I apologize. Um, but the reason I thought it was powerful, um, it talks about feeling invisible. And I just had a hint. There may be people here today that feel a little bit invisible. And maybe you feel invisible here, but maybe you feel a little bit invisible in your workplace. Maybe you feel a little bit invisible to your families. And there's almost like this determination in this song that um, it says this, that the chorus says, I am more than you know, I'm more than you see, I'm more than you let me be, I'm more than you know, I'm a body and a soul. You don't see me, but I am not invisible. And then it gets to the end, and it's actually beautiful, because what it, it was made for Disney Channel. And uh, um, you'll see there are hundreds of guitarists there and all sorts of people. I think, obviously, for the song, they've packed it out with violinists and celloists and, and all this sense of just being together. And, and the frame at the end is, there is no them and us, there's just us. There is no them and us, there's just us. And then right at the end, they end up in a pub, and they're still having the same song. And actually, it's a really lovely thing going, you know what, you're in. And so if you're feeling a bit invisible, if you're wondering how to cope with life, if you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed, then I pray that even through a bunch of Irish rockers, that they may be able to speak to you. Check this out. <laughs>